Leave John Carter alone. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, Thor Ragnarok is coming out. We're uh, taking a look at a... uh, Another character who is fighting a uh, bunch of green characters in kind of gladiator combat, and that is John Carter. So John Carter and Persistence. And to cover John Carter, I bring back Diego Crespo from Audiences Everywhere. Thanks for being back. Yeah, thanks for having me back, especially so soon. Yes. I, I, it's probably the, the lack of Geostorm references, I yeah. imagine. Yeah, I mean, everyone's dying for that, so I had to bring you back. Uh, but where can they find all these great Geostorm references? Uh, well, soon you'll be able to find it on audiences everywhere. I'll probably be talking it up on uh, my personal podcast, The Waffle Press, soon. And where can they follow you online? Oh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter as well, which is, uh, I, my Twitter's bad, but people <laughs> seem to like it. It's at D-E-G-G-O Waffles, where you can find links to everything I write, uh, produce on video, and have a very, very long series of Star Wars videos coming out in preparation for The Last Jedi, so please keep an eye out for that. All right, so before I get into Persistence, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? There are two, and these are supposed to tie in with Thor Ragnarok? Sure, why not? Sure. Okay, okay. Um, So the first one is Lord of the Rings, because the Thor movies have kind of never done something I really wanted them to and that's jump into full on fantasy sure Ragnarok does but it's a different type of fantasy Mm -hmm. and so what better companion piece for a fantasy epic than the genre defining one in the Lord of the Rings which one literally any one of them all of them they're basically one movie Yep, and they're 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 you know masterpieces I mean there's no other way of putting it those are definitive film epics and uh, just an incredible feat for cinema really yep. i will never argue with that recommendation yes okay yeah though well, that's like my trilogy yep like those three right there yep. that's ah so good uh and then the other recommendation is really more for the soundtrack than anything else uh ridley scott's legend starring hmm. tom cruise uh and tim curry right and tim curry yes yeah. An imperfect movie, if there ever was one. But the <laughs> score is is fantastic. It's by Tangerine Dream. Oh yeah, that's and that right. synth soundscapey type vibe is clearly something that uh, Taika Waititi is a fan of. And I think if you like melded Lord of the Rings and Legend together, those two very different film vibes, uh, something like Thor Ragnarok would come out the other end. And and I loved it. Right so. on. Cool. All right. So we are going to take a break. I'll come back to talk about persistence, and then we'll bring Diego back to talk about John Carter. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is. I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. 
I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. Okay, so in the world of psychology, persistence is what we call a personality trait. And really, personality traits are just anything that can be defined as habitual patterns of behavior, thought, and emotion. So there's lots of other things that could be personality traits, like openness to experience, extroversion, agreeableness, honesty, self-esteem, harm avoidance, perfectionism, disinhibition, obsessionality, the list goes on and on. But persistence is, is considered one of four temperament traits. So Persistence is just perseverance in spite of fatigue or frustration. So you keep going even though you can feel the effort it takes. And they've actually found in the research that persistence, like all the other temperament traits, is highly heritable. So if your family is persistent, you're likely be to be persistent as well. And if you look at how they break down persistence, it's kind of four levels. You have eagerness of effort work-hardened, ambitious, and perfectionist. So not all these are good things, but all together they, they tie into persistence. And there's actually a study that was comparing the temperament and character inventory to what we call the five-factor model of personality, and they found that persistence and conscientiousness are associated with one another. So the more conscientious someone is, the more, the more they're likely to persevere. Additionally, persistence was also positively associated with a trait called self transcendence. And this is just a personality trait that's associated with experiencing spiritual ideals, such as considering yourself an integral part of the universe. And I think that's interesting when we think about John Carter, because I think at the beginning of the film, he definitely does not see himself that way. But through his experience and becoming John Carter from Mars instead of just John Carter, I think he does see himself as a part of a bigger picture. Persistence can also be measured as time invested in staying on task. So they give this example. So say a cab driver works an eight-hour shift. Their persistence is eight hours. This isn't a relation to how hard they work. It's just a reference to time and force. So if the person is a hard worker, that would be a reference to effort, not persistence. So that's the slight little difference there. All right, so our first article is from Cloninger. And if you were in the field of psychology, that would mean something to you. Uh, Cloninger is a really big deal. But this article is about the psychological costs and benefits of being highly persistent. So they're taking a look at personality profiles and how they distinguish mood disorders from anxiety disorders. So a little bit of background, they stated that the personality trait of persistence is actually really valued by people, especially people who are overachievers, but it has some psychological both costs and benefits. So there's some interactions between multiple personality factors that influence the development of mood and anxiety disorders. A mood disorder would be like depression, anxiety, obviously things like panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. But they've influenced the development of these disorders in prior clinical samples. So, But this study wanted to disentangle them in terms of the brain circuitry and the influence of perception on the emotional stimuli that are coming in. So they took almost 300 people, 285, and they wanted to get kind of the full range of personality variation. It was all a large sample of adult volunteers, and they were selected for follow-up for psychiatric interviews, cognitive testing, and medical examinations. So they gave them something called the TCI, which is the Temperament and Character Inventory. 
and that put together and measured profiles of traits, personality traits, that distinguish people with diagnoses of mood or anxiety disorders using, you know, a statistical analysis and a profile analysis. So what they found here is that people who were high in harm avoidance and low in self-directedness, so they wanted to avoid harm and they weren't willing to kind of put themselves on their own path, these two things strongly distinguish people with mood or anxiety disorders from those with neither one of these. People who were high in persistence distinguish people with only anxiety disorders from those with mood disorders. So you're not going to see a lot of high persistence in mood disorders like depression, but you are going to see it in those with anxiety disorders. High persistence was also associated with greater health and happiness overall, but it did lead to more negative emotions than in people with low persistence. So that sounds confusing, and I understand that. But what they're saying here is overall, if you are high in persistence, you're more likely to have better health and better happiness. But there is also a chance you're going to experience more of the negative emotions than people with low persistence. So what they found here is that people who are highly persistent, if they're persevering, they're ambitious, they're even perfectionistic, they're more likely to have anxiety disorders than mood disorders even when they have other traits increasing risk for both, like that harm avoidance and self-directedness that I mentioned. If you have high persistence, it increases both positive and negative emotions in most people. But high persistence reduces negative emotions overall and increases positive emotions if a person is easygoing. So a lot of it is not just the character trait, but the temperament. If a person is much more relaxed, and this of course makes sense with anxiety, they're going to be less likely to experience those negative emotions. And I think, uh, I don't, I, you know, it makes me wonder, does John Carter fit into this? Would he be someone who is happy-go-lucky? I don't think so. And I think he's really affected by the things he goes through. And in a lot of ways, he's perfectionistic. Like he wants a very certain life for himself. And when things start to not go his way, he gets upset really quickly. All right, so the last thing we're going to talk about is the connection between persistence and other things, like in this case, for this article, about pride. This is from Dr. David DeSteno, talking about the connection between pride and persistence. So in this particular article, they're talking about business practices. So a lot of managers know that praising employees when they perform well is important, but a lot of them tend to withhold praise. There's this belief that pride can stop your employees from being motivated and make them lazy. And this actually isn't correct. Actually, pride is one of the few emotions that actually makes people persevere more and succeed at work. So pride actually gives people this grit. It doesn't diminish it. So one of the best predictors of success in life is the ability to delay gratification. So there's a really old test called the marshmallow test where they would put a marshmallow in front of kids and they said, you can eat it now or you can wait a certain amount of time and we'll give you more. So it's really hard for kids because kids are terrible at delaying gratification. It's part of growing up and being mature is our ability to delay that gratification and not be impulsive. So in research with adults, there's a link between the ability to be future oriented and better financial work and health outcomes. So if you're able to delay gratification as an adult, it has really good outcomes for you. So if you're willing to accept sacrifices in the moment, like working, practicing, or just persevering in general, 
This will drive productivity, innovation, and eventually prosperity. All right, but where does pride come in come into play here? So a lot of research used to think that all emotions inhibit self-control because they move your mind towards valuing this immediate pleasure. But there's newer research out there that suggests that there are emotions, including pride, that do the opposite. They make us become more patient and future-oriented than we would be otherwise. There's an experiment led by Eddie Tong um, at the National University of Singapore where they asked their participants to make 27 different decisions that took the form of you could either have this amount of dollars now or this amount of dollars in this amount of days. So this is kind of an adult version of the marshmallow test, right? So you have to decide between getting a small prize right now or a much bigger one after some delay. So basically what they found is that if people took the money now, they were devaluing the future. So if someone is willing to accept $35 now rather than $70 in a year, then there's a preference for immediate pleasure because they're foregoing the ability to double their money in a year's time for doing no work. So this particular study did demonstrate the usual human tendency to overvalue immediate gain. But when they asked people to remember a time when they felt proud about specific accomplishments, the pattern actually changed. If they were feeling pride, they would place greater value on future gains and they would be much more willing to accept the money later on down the road. So basically what we'd expect is that if people feel pride, they would be willing to work harder as well. They would show they would show this increased willingness to persevere on really difficult tasks because it enhances their performance and lets them reach long-term goals. But of course they had to put this to the test. So in a series of experiments, what they did is they had participants work on an initial set of really difficult tasks. Some got feedback that made them proud of their performance, while others either received no feedback at all or just statistical information that showed good performance but wasn't accompanied by praise. And then they had to work on a related difficult task for as long as they wanted. And what they found is that the people who got, who felt pride, they would value the future. The ones who were feeling proud about that first performance worked 50% longer on the second task. They persevered in the face of difficulty to use their skills to reach their goal. And what's really interesting is the finding is what they call pride-specific. So it's not just from people feeling good. They did a second study where they placed some people in a good mood prior to having them work, and levels of happiness were not associated with increased effort. Only pride was. So these findings show that pride, like gratitude and compassion, build this self-control and grit from the bottom up. So you're not just relying on willpower to keep working diligently toward a long-term goal. If you give people something to be proud about, that eases the way that they automatically enhance the perceived value of this future reward. And the more desirable a future reward is, the less you have to convince yourself to keep working towards it. And I think this is something that in the movie, John Carter starts to feel as he like gets these abilities and starts succeeding is he gets this pride and he's willing to continue working. I think it's more impressive in the movie that he is persevering at the beginning of the film rather than at the end of the film. Because by the end, he is really, you know, he is really proud of what he does and what he's built and has really helped him. If you look at this study, it's really helped him kind of make this future oriented self much easier. All right, so that's it for the psychology section. We'll take a little break, and then we'll bring Diego Crespo back to talk about John Carter. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature 
of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so it's time to talk about the movie so very briefly what is your history with john carter my history is that i had no idea there were books before the movie came Mm -hmm. out and then immediately like the day of release i found out oh they're from the tarzan guy edgar rice burroughs and i was like Mm -hmm. oh so there's probably like some problematic uh, <laughs> racial politics behind Probably. it, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, I ended up watching the movie. I, I didn't get the the hatred. I know it got mm-hmm. kind of poo pooed on, for sure. But um, like there's there's no there's no long history with this movie for me. I was just I stumbled upon it and I was like, hey, leave, right. leave John Carter alone. Pick on someone <laughs> your own size. Poor Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is a movie because of those very negative reviews and opinions. I kind of stayed away from. I was like, all right, I don't need to see that. Then I'm not. I'm not really anxious to see it anyway. So I'm just gonna avoid it. And I'm kind of annoyed now that I've seen it because I think it's it's pretty good. But I think this is a perfectly enjoyable adventure science fiction film. Yeah, uh, Andrew Stanton directed it, the Pixar guy. Yep. And so far, this is only foray into live action, and I'm kind of bummed about that because. Not everything really works. Like I bet the script is is like incomplete. Like right. not not needs a polish. Like I, I think it needs a couple polishes at, <laughs> yes. at least. Um, like structurally, this thing's kind of a mess. But Stanton's such a good director. There's like a sense of whimsy, and I know people hate using this word in reviews, but when a movie is fun, it's fun. So yeah, uh, John Carter is is that. It is an entertaining ride, and oh, right. my God, it, it is it's not a train wreck by any means. No, and speaking of Andrew Stanton, let's get into that. So we'll start off with the direction. Uh, so this is a movie, I think one of the things I remember when it came out was like, oh, this guy who directed Pixar movies is going to do a live action film. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see how this transfers. And I think I think he does a really good job here. Like, I think it feels like strangely, despite the fact that it is kind of a mess, it still feels self-assured behind the camera. Like, he knows exactly what he wants to get. And I knew it from the moment that John Carter kind of enters the cave, which will be his transition to Mars. Just, like, it's a really well-lit shot. It's got, like, these beautiful kind of blue and gray hues, so you immediately know there's, like, something mysterious about to happen and something going on in it, and it just creates this sense of urgency. Yeah, I mean, the guy's got a crazy good visual eye, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's plenty of striking imagery in the movie, but it's such a such a goofy concept. Yes. You know, like, it, it's it's ridiculous, and... It doesn't do the, the, I guess, the Marvel thing where, you know, those movies can be pretty good. But most of the time it's like, oh, isn't this weird? Isn't this crazy? Right. Uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. And I think um, that's I think it's it's most noticeable to me that when you when you transition from Arizona, where he is, to Mars, the transition is actually really subtle until we get to the gravity joke. Because like Arizona, especially at that time in history, is this deserted wasteland much like mars is so i really like the way it's set up that at first he doesn't know where he is and if you don't know the history behind this you don't either and and for modern audiences i feel like that that should have been a bigger thing like no Mm -hmm. one really talks about that no one really talks about the movie at all which is kind of a bummer right and Um, if they do it ain't pretty like (laughs) 
I don't know. Andrew Stanton. I mean, maybe it's because uh, another Pixar director had just done uh, Mission Impossible Four, Brad Bird, the year yeah, before, and that got right. like rave critical reviews, rightfully so, I believe. Yeah. And so I, I guess maybe expectations were even higher. Yeah, maybe for this movie, or maybe they just weren't. I don't know. It's a weird marketing thing. I think it was kind of mismarketed as a whole. Yeah, it was mismarketed, uh, and then there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff that it went way over budget. I mean, it's like – I think – I looked it up. I think the budget's like $250 million on this movie, which is insane uh, for any era, let alone when this was made. But it also like – it's a good-looking movie, but it's not like $250 million good-looking. Like yeah. it's not like you could really see the money on the screen. It, he also has a difficult job here because there is a there's two very distinct tones in this movie. Like there are moments where it's very serious and there's moments where it's like so funny it's almost camp. So how do you feel like he handled the kind of switch in tone? Uh I I don't think he handled it very well. Like the mm-hmm. two tones separately right. I think are fine. It's just melding them together. Yeah. It's a little like uh start and pause like there's something wrong with the transmission right right driving down the freeway it's not a subtle transition at all like it jumps back and forth between these two tones and i think you're right that both of them separately like this works as a complete uh adventure drama and it also works as a tongue-in-cheek comedy action film but like the two like it just and some of that may be the actor too i don't know we could we could pin that all on andrew stanton i think taylor kitsch you know probably has some of that burden too but there are some things he does really well like there is in that opening scene where gravity is first kind of taking hold of john carter there's a delicate balance of how long to go on with this joke uh because you could you could have it you know, end too soon and be like, oh, there was more to explore there. And you could have this go on way too long. And I feel like it was just right, like just the right amount of humor until we kind of meet the other main characters here. So I thought Andrew Satin actually handled that part really well. Yeah. And there's something to be said about being able to handle the the two differing tones well, mm-hmm. even if they don't, they don't work hand in hand together. Like they, they really feel almost like two separate entities, mm-hmm. not like a cohesive and that's something I think the movie as a whole struggles with too. But being able to handle them well in any form is is commendable. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, I applaud that. And for the Taylor Kitsch thing, I that guy can be utilized properly. Like I know season two of True Detective gets a it's a bad rap, <laughs> and maybe rightfully so at times. Right. Uh, but Taylor Kitsch, he he showed me there that the guy's got chops. Right. He's gotta okay. be put in the right position i guess and i don't know if this was the right one right so let's move into that let's move into the acting so taylor kitsch is an actor i actually kind of like i don't and there's a difference between he's a good actor and an actor i like uh because i don't think he's great uh i think he is much better in supporting roles than he is in carrying a film and this movie because pretty much everyone around him is like a cgi construct he has to carry this movie, and he just doesn't have the charisma to carry a John Carter movie. Like, he's, you know, and he's also doing, he's making some weird choices. He's got, you know, this weird gravelly voice thing going on, and he's kind of doing an accent, and then it just kind of disappears about 20 minutes into the movie, and you're just like, what is happening here? And I, and when he's in action, when he is performing stunts, He's great. He has the presence for that. But every time the man speaks, I'm just like, oh, man, can we get to the next fight? Yeah. Um, and again, like that's it's not easy to to be a legitimate action star. No. To carry like the weight of of the movement between scenes. Like there are plenty of action movies where people just 
you, you don't buy into them at all. Like they clearly didn't study the choreography. They don't have a presence there. Iron Fist. So, oh, that was the first thing that came to mind. I, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think that's a great point, and it's something I talked about on a previous episode when we were talking about Tron Legacy, which has another lead actor who doesn't quite have the charisma to carry a movie, but his action sequences are legitimately great, and we have the same thing here. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. Uh, this is very much a Tron Legacy situation where mm-hmm. the script probably needs a couple bits of fleshing out here yes. and there, and maybe some structural issues could be smoothened out right. uh, pretty easily. But the direction is is sharp. The colors are nice and crisp. I mean, if you're going to go watch a big studio blockbuster that also happens to be kind of an enjoyable mess, you can do far worse than these two. Totally. Um, Are there any other actors that stand out to you? I mean, obviously, the other big main character here is Willem Dafoe in essentially just a a – not just, but essentially a vocal performance. Dominic West playing a villain, as he always does. So is there anyone else, like, from a performance standpoint that really stands out? Uh, Dominic West is one of my favorite actors, uh, and I, I, I wish he was doing more things. He's very good here with, honestly, I don't think very much. Um, right. But Lynn, Lynn Collins is great. What's the character's name? De- Deja Thoris. She's kind of remarkable. Yeah, I'm actually really impressed because she also doesn't have a lot to work with here from a script perspective. But you do really feel the kind of problem she is facing and and everything that is kind of going into her life and her feeling trapped. Like you do, I think she's probably the fir- the only character here you feel a fair amount of empathy towards. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. And yeah. uh, they kind of try to do that with John Carter, but it comes like too late. They do this yeah. really weird thing where they hold off uh, on letting you get close to him right. like, emotionally until later and then... I mean, it, yes. it's one of those situations where they're telling you how to feel instead of letting you feel it. Like, the movie very clearly wants you to like John Carter and feel bad for him. I, I don't think it ever really comes to fruition. I don't think it ever really works. And I feel like the rest of the characters are pretty pretty one-dimensional. Like, no one here is, is bad. It's not like there's terrible performances from Sierra Hins or James Purifoy or Mark Strong. But there's just, you know, there's not that much for them to do. They're kind of placeholders for John Carter's journey. Yeah, and I mean, for a first movie, like, I mean, look at look at a bunch of other blockbusters that we've had in the last five years. The majority of them kind of have the same issues. Just right. John Carter happened to not take off. Right. All right, so let's talk about the script. So one of my big issues with the script, other than it's just a fucking mess, like you can just say that in general, <laughs> is that is there is a lot of exposition in this movie. Like, and it's not just in the beginning, it's not just in the end, it's kind of all the way through, characters are constantly explaining what's going on in this world, and the only reason it kind of works is that John Carter is not from there, so you are learning things as he is learning things, and I think they make a great decision to, in the beginning of the film, before the kind of moment happens, that he can't understand anything they're saying, and neither can we. We don't get subtitles here. Yeah, I loved that, <laughs> like, a lot. Uh, that really helps you get into the mindset. I wondered how long they were going to keep that up, too. Yeah, it does like almost get to the point it. where it's uncomfortable. Like, it's like, okay, we got to get somewhere here. Yeah. Um, and it's like the right sort of disconcern, I think. Right. Because it, it's, a, it's a good little technique to get the audience invested, even if they're not invested in John Carter. It could have ruined the movie if played wrong. Kind of right. like uh, the new Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Like the first right. 20 minutes of that movie are basically silent. And if that 
you don't mm. buy into it, oh boy. That's game over. That's bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. I feel like the movie, although it starts kind of slow because you have all this exposition and all this kind of history of, but I do think they do a good job of keeping you guessing as how he's going to get to Mars. Like I think there's a whole sequence, which I really enjoy in the beginning of the movie where you keep thinking John Carter is your hero. So he's going to escape the clutches of the cavalry and he just keeps failing over and over again. And I think that's where the kind of comedy in this movie starts. You know, all the interactions between Taylor Kitsch and Brian Cranston are actually really enjoyable. Like, I like the first 15 minutes of this movie, even if it does take a while to get to where we know it's going to get to. Yeah, and uh, to its credit, furthermore, the big moments, I think, if they don't uh, play 100% like they're supposed to, mm-hmm. they at least work on on some level to give, like, a legitimate experience. Like, you're, right. you're watching this big sweeping movie that's not as epic as it should be but still yeah but it's still a good time yeah yes yes very good and i think honestly the best written relationship in this movie has nothing to do with john carter uh it's the father-daughter relationship uh between willem dafoe's character and 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 his daughter like i think that really works and it's actually pretty moving and that's really difficult to do with basically completely special effects driven characters yeah i mean i think we're getting better at at it because more movies are starting to utilize special, right. uh, special effects characters. But um, was this even motion capture, or was it just? Uh, I, I don't know. Later? But it does not look like it. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> That's the nicest way I could put that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't really feel like it. Like you, you clearly know they're not real. There's there is something there. Right. And I I don't think I'm as big a fan of it as you, but. Mm-hmm. There's something there that right. that's interesting, and I think that kind of is my feeling about the whole movie. Even if I'm I'm not 100 percent right. on board with it, I think the the one thing that I just keep coming back to is you can just tell how underdeveloped the characters are here and how shortened this field. Like you can feel the cuts here in the script. Like you, there are moments where you're just like, I feel like there should have been another scene here. My personal feeling on this is that I I blame a lot of uh studio mandates to make release dates nowadays yep uh it it hasn't worked in the past and it's worked mostly nowadays but only because it's like we have to adapt uh like the creatives have to adapt when they're making movies i mean right. but uh when you're putting a, a release date as a priority over hey this movie is not good really working, movie yeah yeah <laughs> you, you get you get stuff like like this. Thankfully, this is a good example of it mostly working out, but right. I mean, the studio didn't really make money off of it either, so... So speaking of how the movie looks, let's move to our production value. And the first thing I want to bring up is a really good thing, and um, that is Woola, uh, this uh, Martian dog character, which may be the best character in the entire film. It's the most heartwarming uh, set of sequences when he first gets connected to John Carter, and it's like... it's. It's one of the best, like, animal sidekick characters I've ever seen. Uh, if anyone's going to watch John Carter of... I, I always want to say John Carter of Mars because that's clearly such a better title. Clearly what it should have been called, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's so nerdy. It's awesome. Um, I, I always tell people about the dog first. Yep. Uh, the space good boy. Yes, because oh, he so is. Yes. <laughs> he's just so good, and everyone everyone should love him. I feel, But I feel like overall that was the only creature design that I really liked. The rest of it kind of, I mean, it sucks to say this about a $250 million movie, but it looked kind of cheap. Like, it looked kind of cartoonish instead of, like, these are, and I think the movie really suffers because John Carter has to interact 
with these cartoonish characters, so it stands out even more. Yeah, I, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh, but that juxtaposition between physical and uh, CG physical mm-hmm. is, it reminded me a lot of Attack of the Clones. Visually stunning when it's not with filled with people. Right. And then you put people in it, and it's like, ooh. Like you're not even making eye a- contact. Like, what is happening here? Yeah. Yeah, there's 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 a difference there, and uh, I'm still into it right. because there there's a I'm I'm going along with the journey. I think the journey is worth following in something right. like John Carter. Right. But uh, oh, if that turns someone off, like I I totally get it because it's there needed to be work there. I guess maybe that was the problem when they went over budget. They they realized, hey, this is going to cost more money than we had in mind right. initially. <laughs> it's not about how much you spend. It's about how you spend it. And I feel like there was some pretty foolish spending going on in this movie. And I, yeah. I feel like they knew that this looked kind of silly because if you look at the, the battle sequences, which to my mind, those battle sequences really work. They're some of the best moments of the film. It's where you're totally with John Carter and you, and you care about him and you're worried for him and you're excited by the sequence. And that's because through those scenes, everything moves so quickly. There's very few like slow battles going on in this. It's like thousands of guys coming after John Carter and him just chopping off limbs and going to town. And it's all with lots of quick cuts and lots of movement from the camera. So you can't focus on how bad the kind of interaction between human and CGI character is. But it also has one of my favorite directors of photography is Dan Mandel. He's like J.J. Abrams' go-to guy mm-hmm. for everything. He did Force Awakens. And I can totally both. see that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, oh my God, his, his images are so like pristine and mm-hmm. gorgeous but he also knows how to move with the rhythms of the action. Like, say what you will about Abram's story stuff. Right. That Those movies move. And I think they for do. the most part, John Carter does that too. Yeah, I think there's... For the most part. At about like an hour and 20, an hour and 30, there's moments where it drags a little bit. And I think that's just because of, honestly, just poor performances from, from our lead actor. Like, I think it, it becomes really hard to believe the love story that's supposedly going on here. And that's not her fault. I think she is... Very good and fine, and he is just, like, dead behind the eyes in the sequences. Like, he has no interest. And I think what he's trying to get across is how torn he is because he does want to go home, but he does have feelings for her. But it just comes off like, I don't know, like he's a little annoyed, a little bored, something. Like, okay, this is total random hypothetical, but, like, who who else could you see in a role like this? What Taylor Kitsch has going for him is that he's good-looking. And especially once he shaves off his horrible beard, he's really nice to look at. Um, but yeah. I, he just can't deliver dialogue. Honestly, who would you cast in a in a John Carter from Mars movie? Jake Gyllenhaal, um, maybe at this point in his career. Oh, you know what? Yeah, that would be a good one. But my Prince of Persia uh, too, John Carter from Mars. That'll be great. Oh yeah, less <laughs> less racist. So that's yes, good. Slightly. Um, yes. Zach Efron. I think Zach Efron oh, sure. would be good. I could see that. Yeah, he might yeah, be a tiny bit can... too pretty. For this role, but I think he could pull it off. Specifically in stuff like Neighbors, mm-hmm. he's really good at like holding pain behind his eyes, even yeah. when stuff is like really goofy. That's true. Like he has he has like legitimate like pathos and even like the most ridiculous of oh. his performances. Right. So yeah. I, I think one day that guy will will get more recognition for his dramatic chops, and maybe John Carter would have been it, but I don't know. All right, so let's move to our favorite scenes. I don't even remember the name of of, of the villain, but the guy who's like John Carter, and it looks like it's going to be a big epic throwdown, and then yes. he's just like, boom, nope. Yeah, 
<laughs> I, I love that. That reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You don't need that big throwdown. Maybe there's an argument for having that there, but uh, the, the way this movie moves, I feel like that. Well, there's plenty been... of throwdowns in this movie. I don't think you need like a you know a standoff in this movie necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So that I, I really appreciated that. Just something about how that played out. I was like, oh my, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. This movie hadn't by that point. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, obviously, is the. Uh, the kind of introduction um, of Wula, I think that is adorable and works and also sets the plot in motion, which is really cool that it's not just a moment designed to introduce a silly character and be adorable, but because of what happens in that sequence, everything in the plot moves forward. So I really like that moment, but I also really like the fight sequence with the, like, I guess the white ape is the best way to describe it. Uh, I think that fight sequence really works, and I think it works with human versus CGI character here because I think because this thing is so massive, so it's going to look alien anyway. You're not going to have hand to hand combat here, uh, and it's interesting you mentioned the Star Wars uh, prequels because it reminded me of that scene from the first Star Wars prequel uh, where they're kind of thrown into this gladiator pit and have to fight off these creatures. That and I like the kind of ending sequences of him covered in this like blue blood and have this kind of smirk on his face. And I think it really captures, it's one of the few moments I think that captures the combination of the drama, the high adventure drama and the comedy that's there too. Yeah, it, it totally nails down the pulp adventure aesthetics. Right. And I wish more movies could be as nerdy as this. Right, because it, it, it's goofy, but there's nothing wrong with, with goofy, and you don't have to call it out every second. Like, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go into Thor Ragnarok yet, but I was very happy <laughs> that they were like, "Hey, look at how ridiculous everything is!" Like, right. it just is, and that's that's it, you know. Right. Uh, and sir, that is from Attack of the Clones. That's episode two, not episode one. The Phantom Menace. That's okay. Attack of the Clones is is pretty boring. I I, I don't begrudge anyone for forgetting. It's one of the few exciting moments in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, very pretty though for the it most is. part. It is. I, yeah, I should know that. The first one is Anakin as a child, so that wouldn't work. So yes. Yeah. All right. So now let's move to our theme, which is persistence. So as you watch this movie with persistence in mind, how did it kind of play into John Carter? For me personally, I I, rem- I was reminded of persistence because when the flow of the narrative was not allowing me to kind of settle into the characters <laughs> and the adventure of the, the movie. You would persist. Andrew Stanton's, I would persist. No, I'm serious. Andrew Stanton's direction and the total commitment to something that is just so bizarre mm-hmm. and really reminiscent of old pulp sci-fi artist renditions, just so um, impassioned by, by their passion in making this movie because I don't think anyone can walk away from this thing that there was – there was nothing to it other than like, oh yeah, movie. The movie need to be made because people are really craving a John Carter movie. Oh yeah, we were all you know? clamoring for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where's <laughs> my John Carter cinematic universe? The the thing I was kind of thinking is like from the very beginning of the movie, like whether you agree with what John Carter is doing or not, you cannot tell me that he is not persistent. Like he may be stupid. He may be silly, but once he sets his mind to something, he's going to do it. Even if that means, you know, fighting off the cavalry time and time again, even if that means escaping accidentally to Mars and being imprisoned. And then there was never a moment in this movie where, and I think you need this in this kind of pulp hero movie, there's never a moment where you feel like, oh, here's where he's going to give up. 
Like, here is where he just, he can't do it anymore, and he has to have a moment where he turns the corner. Got on uh, Taylor Kitsch's case for not having a lot of charisma, but roles like this are really difficult to show charisma in, because there's not really a huge arc as far as character motivation goes. Like, he, you know, granted he falls in love, he learns to care for this person, but so much of that is done kind of in between the pages or behind the scenes. So he really just has to persist in this movie and keep moving forward no matter what the cost. And I think we get that from the character of John Carter. I, I want to have that for the character. The rest of the movie does that work for me, but uh Well yeah, I don't I don't think Taylor yeah. Hitch does it. I think but I think it is a hard job to play a character like this. I don't oh, I don't no, think totally just is. anyone can do this. You can't just walk in and be a fantasy science fiction hero with no effort. Uh that's our kind of review of John Carter, an enjoyable trashy mess uh, but nowhere near as bad as you've probably heard, so I would highly recommend checking it out if you want to kind of, you know, just enjoy a silly adventure science fiction movie. So now we talk about the movie we are pairing this with, uh, which is Thor Ragnarok. And this will be a bit tricky to talk about because, Diego, you son of a bitch, you've seen it already. <laughs> so instead of asking you, are you excited about it? I will ask you, should I be excited about seeing Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, I can, I can, I can say things now, legally. Um, you should not, be not too excited. much. <laughs> no, no, no. I won't. I won't spoil anything. I, I think the biggest surprise is that they let Taika Waititi make a Taika Waititi film. This is what I was excited about. This is what I was hoping for. This is what I was yeah. looking forward to. Finally, a Marvel <laughs> movie that feels like it was directed by a person and not a machine. I think this might be the best one because there's something about the rhythm of the comedy and the action that flows like only Taika Waititi could do. Because there's a lot of tones. There's comedy. There's adventure. There's emotional beats, and I think if there's anything I'm, I was kind of, I wish there had been more of. It was the emotional beats. Mm. They never sacrifice it for the joke like they do in some other movies. Right. Perhaps I think Taika Waititi only did like a couple passes at the script, if any, mm-hmm. because yeah, it, some some heavy things happen, and it's like whoa, right? Uh, okay, but how he blends it with the the action and the adventure and the. I mean, God, it, I know people hate like saying, "Oh, a Marvel movie's funny," <laughs> but this one's like freaking hilarious. Yeah, I, I was I was very surprised they just let him run wild. That's... And uh, listening to him talk about it, he clearly had a blast, and apparently, maybe or may not direct another one. Yeah, he's already said he soon. wants to. Yeah, so this is all good news for me because I am uh, I'm actually a fan of the Thor series. I think the first Thor is underappreciated. Uh, and I think the second Thor is kind of a mess, but I still enjoyed my time with it, but it's not a movie I need to go back to time and time again. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this movie for Tessa Thompson and Kate Blanchett. Uh, I would watch either of those actresses in just about anything. And the fact that we get Kate Blanchett in that kind of costuming, I mean, I was sold as soon as I saw a screenshot. I was like, all right, I'm in Taika Waititi's directing and I get this. Okay. Good enough for me. Oh my God, she's amazing. Uh, maybe the character could arguably have a little more to do, but I mean, if you have any more of her, then you might be overdoing her. Right. And I was surprised, not just by how we all know Kate Blanchett's going to be amazing. It's Kate Kate Blanchett. Always. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was caught off guard by how she's used thematically. Right. And I I wonder if people are going to miss it and dismiss it as as being another empty Marvel villain, of which I have several problems with. The last year has had <laughs> two really good ones. Whatever. Say what you want about the previous ones, but oh my God, you're all crazy. Uh, and Tessa Thompson could rule the world. Tessa Thompson, she's she's going to have her own trilogy of movies. They haven't even announced it, but I, I 
there's they're crazy if they don't do that. Yeah. All right, I am here for it. All right, so before you go, Diego, one more time, tell people how to find your work online and how to find you online. I'm probably the one yelling about how good the first store is, but my Twitter <laughs> handle is at D E double G O waffles. Um, oh, uh, Geostorm. There you go. I there you go. You almost missed your <laughs> shot. All right. Perfect. You know, uh, we talk movies, audiences everywhere.net, uh, The Waffle Press, my personal podcast. Uh, check everything out there. Again, a seriously long endeavor with a couple Star Wars things we're doing there. So please keep an eye out. That was a lot of work. Diego is definitely putting a lot of work on that podcast, The Waffle Press, audiences everywhere, on Twitter at Diego Waffles, so follow him on all of those things and check him out. And we're doing work here, too, so our next episode will be a new release review of the much-anticipated Thor Ragnarok. But in the meantime, there's a lot of ways you can connect with the show. You can follow us on social media at Study. You can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like the following films podcast and War Machine vs. Warhorse, where you can donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and you can donate on a per-episode basis and support your local independent podcast. So, until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Wow, so my What did bad. you do? <laughs> I, I actually pressed the end call button. That was my bad, my bad. I'm here now, though. You have okay. the worst luck with Skype, I swear to God. It, I do. There's, a, there's no answer for any of this. It, it simply just hates me. 